Hey everyone, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bostock, and today we'll be picking back up where we left off on our last episode. We'll be talking about the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon well blowout and the explosion that left 11 men dead and emergency response teams scrambling. Let's go ahead and hop right in. As always, thanks for listening. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are on the threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Which is the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. As you may recall, on the morning following the accident, a Coast Guard spokesperson had wrongly stated that the well being drilled by the horizon, the Macondo well, had been sealed and that no oil was leaking out into the Gulf. Well, this, of course, was not true. The spokesperson revised their statement the following day, stating that, in fact, the well was gushing oil out into the ocean. In fact, it was releasing about a 1,000 barrels of oil a day. From that point, the race was on to seal the well. So, following the explosion and sinking of the horizon, the company that was leasing the well at the time, British Petroleum, or BP, began immediately scrambling to gain control of the spill and the narrative. Why? Well, because it turns out that the crude oil was indeed gushing out of the sea floor at a rate of about 130 liters per second, which equates to about 400,000 liters per hour. As I mentioned in our last episode, 11 workers lost their lives when an explosion and subsequent blaze gutted the horizon on April 20th, 2010. 115 workers were actually rescued, and all were presumably in a state of shock, and many of them had actually suffered severe injuries. In the months and years that would follow this catastrophe, it was reported that, following the evacuation of the survivors, BP had sequestered and grilled the workers on the details surrounding the accident. Doug Brown, chief mechanic on the horizon, states in a December 2011 documentary that he was interviewed by the Coast Guard first. Afterwards, he reports being interviewed by TransOcean lawyers. Now, we'll recall that TransOcean is the company that owned the oil rig. So, Doug was not allowed to have his own lawyer at the time, or at least this fact was never mentioned to him. This was all done while the surviving crew were reportedly being kept awake for over 40 hours. The lawyers prompted them to sign a sworn statement alleging that they were asleep, saw nothing, and heard nothing of the explosion. 
it was inferred that by signing these statements, they would be allowed to go home. On top of these sworn statements, there was also pressure to sign non-disclosure agreements, or NDAs. And these were agreements that basically bound the workers to secrecy. They could never talk about what happened on the rig, and they would never be able to talk about having to sign these statements. Now, that does make you wonder, did the company have a little bit more to hide than we first thought? Let's take a look at how BP, Halliburton, Cameron, and Transocean owned up for what happened at Deepwater Horizon. The Deepwater Horizon operated for seven years prior without incident, but under the use of BP, that streak was broken. In the first part of this series, we touched upon the various ways in which BP's operation in the Macondo Prospect was rife with problems. First off, there were major time delays. The drilling of the well up to completion was supposed to take only 90 days, meaning the drilling was behind schedule and crewmen reported pressure to complete the well as fast as possible. According to these crewmen, rushing and working with defective equipment was purported to be at play. So let's focus on the rushing. When you drill too fast, the formation that is being drilled through can fracture. Drilling fluid, or mud, can then seep through those fractures. Pressurized gases can also then funnel through those same fractures, which make its way up to the wellbore pipe. And this is the same type of gas bubble that ignited and caused the explosion. Now, as you remember, gas coming up the wellbore is called a kick. Now, in terms of this well, crewmen did report clocking kicks coming up the well very often. Normally, kicks don't go beyond 1,000 PSI, but crewmen reported kicks as high as 3,000 PSI, and this was already indicative of a very unstable well. Now let's shift our frame over to the defective and ineffective equipment. When you're drilling downwards, especially at such depths, the pipe or drill tunnel is never ramrod straight. To mitigate this, a piece of equipment called a centralizer is put into place. So for the Macondo well project, Halliburton recommended the use of 23 centralizers. But BP only ordered 6 and installed only 6. Now this made the necessary cement seal considerably weaker on one side of the pipe than the other. And as we mentioned in the last episode, constant testing is required on rigs like the Horizon. Of course, this is because we're dealing with volatile elements, extreme conditions, and BP did not perform the necessary cement bond test when they were done with the well. In fact, they 
ordered the Schlumberger crew to depart the rig without performing that required test. And if you remember, it saved them something like $130,000 and, of course, time. And to BP, time is money. So last episode, we touched upon how the data was interpreted when it comes to the negative and positive pressure tests. The signs were there, but they were ignored or they were purposely misinterpreted. So in this episode, we're focusing more on the cleanup and the after effects of this unfortunate event. So initially, BP claimed that nearly one quarter of the spilled oil had been contained by emergency platforms. The concern was that the crude, now visibly floating atop the waves of the Gulf, would reach the mainland, which was about 80 kilometers away. This scenario, you know, visible oil reaching the mainland, would be even more catastrophic for BP's standpoint. You know, this would be a PR nightmare. So because of this potential PR nightmare, they decided to initially burn off 40 million liters of surface slick. And this is the oil floating on top of the ocean. Now, after burning off oil, they realized this was not a feasible option for total cleanup and control of the issues. So BP mitigated against the floating crude oil with the use of chemical dispersants. Now, chemical dispersants were popular with the oil industry at the time. For their agenda of immediacy in this scenario and others, it seemed like the right choice. But really, it's all smoke and mirrors. So BP sought permission to use these chemical dispersants, and these dispersants were actually banned in Europe at the time. Unfortunately, they were granted permission to use them by the U.S. government. And boy, did they ever. They used more cumulative dispersants than the entire industry had combined up until that point. So BP used Corexit, a chemical dispersant that is applied by aerial spraying or from ships directly onto an oil slick. The chemical dispersants initially used by BP on the oil spill caused the oil to glob up, or form into globs, and sink below the surface. Now, as we can guess, these globs may have disappeared from view, but they didn't go away completely. And we'll find out that they actually fully integrated into the water column later on. So additionally, BP was given permission by the U.S. government to experiment using Corexit directly onto the well hole. Well, this experimentation did not work. The oil was not broken down successfully. One thing that wasn't accounted for were the upwellings that occurred naturally in that area. So these flumes carry nutrients up from the ocean floor. 
they were now carrying oil as well into the natural currents of the Gulf, which would then be carried around the world. The public response to this tactic was not favorable. But instead of BP stopping what they were doing, they just decided to stop publicly stating what they were doing. Like I just mentioned, the dispersant method is faulty. It only hides the problem, and it kind of offers a short-term solution, but it doesn't truly tackle the issue at hand. The flumes were distributing the oil globs throughout the water column, and once they were out of these currents, the oil globs were settling to the bottom of the ocean. Now, of course, as things stir up and catch currents, some oil eventually started to resurface in mutated forms. All in all, the chemical dispersant method was ineffective, or at least unsustainable. About 5 million liters of the product would be used in an effort to counter the spill. It also, in a way, accentuated the problem. It turns out that the chemicals were undoubtedly toxic. But don't get BP wrong, they did anticipate their nasty side effects. At a press conference on May 12, 2010, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA, spokesperson and marine biologist Jane Lubchenco stated, quote, it's a trade-off decision to lessen the overall environmental impact. When an oil spill occurs, there are no good outcomes. Now, David Biello, who chronicled the effects of Corexit in a 2010 article for Scientific American, ruefully called the whole operation, quote, fighting pollution with pollution, which I think is very fitting. So let's go ahead and take a little bit deeper look into the toxicity of Corexit. So Corexic, the chemical dispersant used in the first installment of measures to counter the oil spill, was undoubtedly toxic. It is reported as being capable of killing or depressing the growth of a wide range of aquatic species, ranging from phytoplankton to fish. And this was according to a Scientific American article in 2010. Also, ships that were used in the spraying process would later report that the Corexit chemicals had caused an increase in engine problems and that it had dissolved rubber seals on the vessels. Basically, the trade-off for using the Corexit was as such. Use the toxic chemicals in the ocean to save the marshes off of Louisiana and the beaches of Florida. It's kind of a lose-lose situation. So Corexic was developed as a product to minimize the impact of any oil that spills into the water. According to Scientific American, in 2010, the reported way that the chemical works is as such, quote, the dispersant process prevents the oil from reaching the shore and converts the oil to easy food for naturally occurring microbes. So ideally, it is supposed to disperse 
the oil into fine droplets. And so the combination of chemicals break down the tiny globules of oil that sink down below the surface. And this is when they are supposed to be suspended underwater, which makes them essentially invisible to the naked eye. Dr. Riki Ott, a marine toxicologist turned environmental activist, was interviewed in the 2011 documentary Profit, Pollution, and Deception. She specialized at the time on the effects of Corexit. According to her, the oil industry claimed that Corexit, as we mentioned earlier, gets eaten up by microbes. Well, microbes, says Ott, prefer to eat alkenes, which are hydrocarbons, classified as unsaturated compounds with at least one carbon-to-carbon -carbon double bond. So she then goes on to compare the bacteria to Pac-Man, stating that ideally it would chomp away at the alkenes. The problem that she noted was that the mess of the oil and chemical residue left off by the Corexit was actually a mixture of alkenes and aromatics, so the microbes won't actually break it down at all. Now she further went on to state that during the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989, Corexit was also used. And so it was known at the time of this incident that Corexit was a human health hazard. Interestingly, the EPA classified it as an acute human health hazard, which could be potentially harmful to red blood cells. So, it turns out that it breaks down red blood cells, causing kidney damage, liver damage, and it can cause skin and eye irritations. So, unfortunately, at the time, the oil industry relied on scientific data from the 1970s to justify its use of Corexit on spills like the ones resulting from the Exxon Valdez and Deepwater Horizon accidents. Contrary to this, the scientific community at the time of the Horizon accident was in accordance that dispersants and dispersed oil were more toxic than oil alone. BP found out that what Corexit actually does is manage a PR nightmare, not clean up oil spills. Luckily, the EPA would eventually order BP to stop spraying Corexit in May of 2010. And it should be noted that in August of 2010, Ricky Ott actually alleged that BP kept using Corexit in secret and wrote an op-ed for the Huffington Post calling them out on it. So eventually crude oil did reach the mainland, and remember that was 80 kilometers away from the accident site. All told, thousands of miles of coastline would be affected by this. It was so large that BP actually employed fishermen for the cleanup, and they were the very people who were losing their jobs due to this spill. Of course, BP was thinking of PR, 
And so these massive cleanup crews were deployed in highly visible places. It was known that oil was actually still under the sand, even if it appeared that it had been cleaned up by these cleanup crews. And so if someone just dug a little bit, just a small amount, you could still see crude oil. It was actually said that people would be individually scooping up little tar balls with kitty litter scoops and not sophisticated machinery. And so this effect is largely critiqued as performative and does little to mitigate the long-term effects. And like I said, it was mostly done for the tourists and for the people who lost their jobs and for BP's image. To show that BP wanted to keep their image somewhat clean, at the time they had a catchy post-spill slogan, and it read, quote, Objective, keep the beaches clean and open. Report oil. Now, I feel like the language used here is significant. It reminds me of how the mayor in the movie Jaws wanted to keep the beach open at all costs. It should be noted that this catchy slogan also included their phone number to call. So that's nice that they at least had some sort of line set up for you to call if you found oil. Now BP also reported bringing scientists on board to help find solutions for the spill. So there were actually scientists, but none of them were working directly for BP and they all seem to have different views concerning the chemical dispersant and beach cleanups. So there were other tactics that were proposed, but were never adopted. Independent scientists believed that at the time that as much as 70% of the leaked oil still roamed throughout the Gulf, even after the large-scale use of dispersants and the beach cleanup activities. So to recap, only a small fraction of oil was actually physically skimmed or burned from the surface of the ocean. The dispersants were effective in appearance only with the oil still roaming in a mutated state in the water column. And the beach cleanup was also rather performative. Locals reported that cleanups were done in locations that were tourism hubs, and that crude oil was still present if you dug under the sand. Well, some engineers in the oil industry purported early on that a more effective method could have been adopted in the immediate fallout of this catastrophe. See, because the oil was initially just a huge slick, a lot of it could have been sucked up. Now, as funny as it sounds, this method is called the suck, salvage, and separate method. So basically, you would use pumps to suck the slick straight out of the ocean. The slick, of course, is the crude oil just floating on top of the water. So once it's sucked up, the water is then filtered from the oil and returned to the ocean. It should be noted that in order to use this method, super tankards would have to be used. This method would have theoretically been super effective during the first month 
of the oil spill, since the seas were very calm and collecting the slick would have been easier. However, BP refused to send out huge tankers to do that method. Fortunately, there are companies out there that, that don't take the environment for granted and are willing to try these methods out. In fact, a, in fact, another company, TMT, actually sent out one of these super skimmers, which was a 1,115-foot oil ore carrier outfitted for skimming, and they did this on their own dime. So during its two-week test in the Gulf, it was found to be ineffective. It was surmised that the broken-up oil affected by dispersants could no longer be effectively skimmed. I think it's admirable for this company to send out their own super skimmer on their own dime but it's unfortunate that it was too late and that the dispersants had already been laid out, causing it to be ineffective. It was just too late at that point to use the suck, salvage, and separate method. Meanwhile, let's not forget that the Macondo well is still gushing oil into the ocean. Now, pertaining to getting the well under control, the release of oil under control, several methods were put into place. So method one, which was put into place about one month into the release of the oils, was the relief well. The cleanup of the oil slick with dispersants and the physical scooping of the tar balls on the beaches from Louisiana to Florida was ongoing in the months following the explosion. On May 2, 2010, one month after the initial explosion, BP started drilling a relief well. Relief wells were already an industry-tested method at the time. The method is described by LA Times as, quote, a slow workaday method that has successfully plugged other giant spills. The process is slow, and BP initiated the drilling of the two wells in order to optimize its chance of stabilizing the Macondo well. And yes, I said two wells, because on May 16, 2010, they decided to drill a second relief well. So how does a relief well work? Well, it's drilled to intersect with the well that has experienced a blowout. So specialized liquid, like the drilling mud we mentioned before, is pumped down the relief well. And this is followed by cement. And the goal is to stop the flow of the initial well by plugging it up. Now method two, and this is still one month in, was containment dome. So BP deployed three containment domes designed to collect most of the crude oil. Now these were actually removed due to hydrate buildup. So BP had to go back to the drawing board. Now the last method was top kill. So we're still in May of 2010. BP decided to pump thousands of barrels of mud into the well in an attempt to plug the leak. 
ultimately, it is shortly deemed ineffective in this particular case. So these were the three methods that were initially used to try to stop the oil leak. Unfortunately, none of these methods worked, and the well was still gushing onto the seafloor two months after the initial explosion that blew it open. And at this time, it was reported that it had affected a surface area the size of Portugal. Finally, in July of 2010, BP attempted to place another containment dome on the well, but oil continued to escape the top cap. As a last-ditch effort, BP attempts to place another containment dome on the well, but oil continued to escape from that top cap and make its way to the surface. Eventually, on July 10, 2010, a new containment cap with a better seal is installed and this finally stops the leak. On August 2, 2010, BP undertook what is referred to as a static kill of the well. This is when heavy drilling fluid, mud, and cement are pumped into the well to stop the flow of oil. And this operation was ultimately successful. Later on in September of 2010, BP finally announces that the well has been officially sealed. The kill operations had been completed and the casing and annulus of the well are sealed by cement. So it only took 106 days for the Macondo well to finally be sealed. The whole ordeal betrays the lack of an adequate contingency plan on BP's part. It was clear from the beginning that they were simply going day by day and had never properly accounted for the outcome of such a disaster. As we know, oil is a pollutant, and pollutants come with a plethora of effects. One of the most well-known pictures that came out of this catastrophe is the image of the tarred brown pelican. In effect, the pelican kind of became the poster animal for this disaster. And don't worry, I'll make sure to link a photo of this image on our Instagram page. But in reality, many, many more animals were affected beyond this pelican. In a 2017 report published by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which collected data for five years and compiled research from over 20 scientific studies, stated that, quote, The research indicates that populations of several marine mammal and sea turtle species will take decades to rebound. Significant habitat restoration in the region will also be needed. The NOAA scientists concluded this report, stating, quote, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill killed thousands of marine mammals and sea turtles and contaminated their habitats. The Gulf of Mexico is home to 22 species of marine mammals, 
including manatees and coastal seagrasses, dolphins and whales in estuaries, nearshore and offshore habitats. And it also is home to five species of sea turtles, which are all protected under the Endangered Species Act. These species are the loggerhead, Kemp's Ridley, Hawksbill, Leatherback, and Green Sea Turtle. The Gulf of Mexico provides critical habitat for the sea turtles, being areas for reproduction, feeding, migration, and refuge. And this, and this includes the extensive sargasm habitat in the open ocean that juveniles rely on for survival. And the sargasm is a giant brown macroalgae. Marine mammals and sea turtles were likely exposed to the oil by inhalation, aspiration, ingesting contaminated sediment, water, or prey, or by absorbing contaminants through their skin. The marine mammal researchers quoted in the NOAA report concluded that, quote, Exposure to the oil caused a wide range of adverse health effects such as reproductive failure and organ damage, and that animals killed by these adverse effects contributed to the largest and longest marine mammal unusual mortality event ever recorded in the Gulf of Mexico. So it was actually reported that up to 20% of all oceanic juvenile Kemp Ridley sea turtles present during the horizon event perished from oil exposure. In Louisiana, Barataria Bay bottlenose dolphins suffered a 50% population decline in the year following the spill due to these adverse health effects linked to the oil. And this was namely the lack of reproductive success. Now I mentioned that a lot of fishermen were out of work and were used in cleanup efforts. A lot of these fishermen were also made up of shrimpers. And so shrimp is another good example to bear in mind. In fact, the shrimp count was down immediately after the spill. A few droplets of oil is reported as being enough to kill a young shrimp. Now, of course, as I just mentioned, this affected the fishermen who rely on these little invertebrates for work at the local shrimp processing plants as well. So coastal Louisiana employs loads of shrimp fishermen, or shrimpers. A year prior to the spill, for example, you could be processing the shrimp at the plant for up to 18 hours a day. Now, local fishermen report that at the same time the year prior to the spill, it wasn't uncommon to be catching up to 100,000 pounds of shrimp per week. But following the spill, the catches were closer to 20,000 pounds of shrimp per week. As I mentioned, BP employed many of these local fishermen in the ongoing cleanup process. Nevertheless, lots of fishermen were still out of work. Of course, not every fisherman could get a job cleaning the oil up, and the oil cleanup did not last forever, or at least did not last as long as these long-lasting effects of the oil spill. So these shrimpers 
understand that the oil is in the food web. The shrimp feeds off of smaller particles, like plankton. And the smaller fish eat the shrimp, bigger fish eat those smaller fish, and the birds, like that pelican I spoke of, feed off the fish, and that cycle goes on and on. So, of course, it's not safe to fish these waters because of this accumulation, even as the oil isn't visible. Now, because of this, the Coast Guard installed booms cordoning off sections further off the coast. So, no one was allowed in those areas, not the fishermen nor the media. Now, locals, including fishermen off the Louisiana coast, report that a Zone off the coast has been sectioned off to outsiders and it carried a $40,000 penalty if anyone was to sail into that area. Now this penalty is enforced by the U.S. Coast Guard. And of course there are murmurs that the Coast Guard is actually working for BP in this scenario, protecting the interests of a foreign company. Of course... These can't quite be substantiated. Locals also report that the boats are ordered away from certain areas before nightfall. Now when tide comes in at night, so does the oil slick. Dispersants were then sprayed on the slick, which sinks under the surface, but is still effectively present in the water column. But, you know that old saying, out of sight, out of mind. Now, of course, I've already alluded a little bit to the human impact of all this with the fishermen, but there are other impacts as well. As I touched upon earlier, many of the folks along the coastline were affected by the explosion on board the horizon, as well as the subsequent oil spill. Eleven workers ended up losing their lives, and many of the survivors suffered from survivor's guilt. Their stories are actually chronicled in a movie aptly titled The Great Invisible. We saw this little bit when we looked at the aftermath of the Fukushima nuclear disaster and its effects on the survivors. Some of the survivors report very intense PTSD and suicidal ideation. In this movie, it's also stated that oil rig work was seen as the last true blue-collar job in America. It was hard work for excellent pay. Now, the Horizon explosion kind of shattered that notion and the fabric of reality for these survivors. For the locals on the coastlines, their natural environment, which were pristine marshlands and beaches, were greatly affected. That in itself can be insidiously damaging for morale and mental health. These environments also provided locals with employment, such as the fishermen, but also local fisheries and plants were forced to close or suspend operations indefinitely. Now it can also be said that the oil industry held these same people in a chokehold with their cleanup process. As I said earlier, they employed people 
who were rendered jobless by the spill to clean up the shorelines. Now, the methods used were ineffective and largely for show, you know, such as cleaning up tar balls with kitty litter scoops. There was actually an underlying knowledge that the people were being employed and well-paid in order for them to keep quiet. And this created a deep sense of resentment in locals who felt trapped by their circumstances. Interestingly, these workers were also bound by contract not to discuss the spill. BP didn't quite get away completely scot-free. Let's take a look at the reparations, where BP is held financially accountable. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, the Clean Water Act, or CWA, quote, establishes the basic structure for regulating discharges of pollutants into the waters of the United States and regulating quality standards for surface waters. Now, it's under this act, as well as the Oil Pollution Act, that the U.S. government sanctioned BP, as well as the other players in this story. According to the EPA, this act, quote, streamlined and strengthened their ability to prevent and respond to catastrophic oil spills. Now here's a breakdown of BP's financial accountability. It was a historic settlement, and it was reached on April 4th of 2016, six years later. It was settled in federal court in New Orleans, and it resolved the civil claims against BP and everyone else. So BP was ordered to pay a Clean Water Act penalty of $5.5 billion, plus interest. They were also forced to pay $8.1 billion in natural resource damages, and this includes the $1 billion BP already paid for early restoration projects. Now on top of that, $700 million was ordered to be paid for adaptive management, and this was unforeseen consequences of this disaster. And, of course, $600 million was ordered to be paid for other smaller claims. All in all, BP would settle for roughly $20.8 billion, and like I said, this is a landmark settlement. Although this is a promising legacy in that the spill was very costly for BP, the landscape of the oil industry remained largely unchanged post-Horizon in that no new laws were passed to prevent this type of disaster from happening again. As Professor David Ullman purports in his article for The Conservative, quote, Meanwhile, Americans have yet to heed the spill's wake-up call to reduce our nation's dependence on fossil fuels and accelerate the transition to clean energy. From my perspective, as an environmental law professor and the former chief of the Justice Department's Environmental Crimes Section, that failure stands out as a continuing tragedy of this spill. 
Now that we know how much BP was forced to pay out, let's take a look at how various restoration projects have been operating for the last decade. As early as September of 2010, restoration planning had began. On April 21, 2011, over a year after the disaster happened, BP gives $1 billion to early restoration projects, as I just mentioned. Now, the Gulf Spill restoration projects are allocated to a group of trustees at the federal level. These trustees are the Department of Commerce, the Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Interior, and U.S. Department of Agriculture. And this was all done with the collaboration of the affected states, which were Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. Here I have two examples of some of the ongoing restoration projects. The first being the enhanced management of the avian breeding habitat injured by response activities in the Florida Panhandle, Alabama, and Mississippi. Within this, the Department of Interior will reduce disturbance to nesting and foraging habitat for beach nesting birds at Gulf Islands National Seashore, and that's in Florida and Mississippi, and as well as the Bon Secours National Wildlife Refuge and St. Vincent National Wildlife Refuge and monitor those results. Now the second example is the Lake Hermitage Marsh Restoration. So this restoration created 104 acres of marsh in the Barataria Basin using Mississippi River sediment. So the creation of this marsh had a goal to restore brackish marsh habitat within the Barataria Hydrologic Basin. A little side note on this project, the marsh was actually later tested and it was revealed that it was a salt marsh, not a brackish marsh. But ultimately, it was considered a successful restoration project. So at the end of all this, BP paid a steep financial price for the Deepwater Horizon accident. Ultimately, it wasn't enough of a catalyst for change to initialize a shift in resource extraction. Now these restoration projects are collaborative and they're still ongoing. You can find a complete list of the Gulf restoration projects on the Gulf Spill Restoration Project website, which we will link to in our show notes. So within these last two episodes, we've found that BP really aimed to clean up its image and not the ocean. During the Clean Water Act trial, it was determined that 4 million barrels of crude oil were released from the reservoir, of which approximately 3.19 million barrels were released directly into the Gulf of Mexico. And these are the final numbers. On January 11, 2011, the Presidential Commission's final report on the spill titled Deep Water, the Gulf Oil Disaster and the Future of Offshore Drilling 
ultimately found BP guilty of negligence. Here are some of the conclusions brought forth by the report. The explosive loss of the Macondo well could have been prevented. The immediate causes of the Macondo well blowout can be traced to a series of identifiable mistakes made by BP, Halliburton, and TransOcean that reveal such systematic failures in risk management that they place in doubt the safety culture of the entire industry. So in short, the corporate entities spearheading these types of endeavors took many liberties that ultimately cost the lives of 11 workers and impacted many more in invisible ways. It affected marine life and the livelihoods of thousands of people. They were held financially accountable, but the larger issues presented by the report, such as the need for re-evaluation of the U.S.'s offshore energy exploration, has remained largely unaltered since. We can find solace in the collaborative nature of the Gulf restoration projects, and although the environment is still struggling to bounce back, more than a decade after the disaster, there are signs of progress, and this is promising. I hope you enjoyed this topic. I know it was a little bit of a stretch over two episodes, but I think at the end it all came together nicely. The research for this topic was done by Chloe Kibbe and reviewed by myself. Next week is our second Current Events episode. This episode is going to touch on a few completely different things. The first topic of discussion is the Tennessee whiskey fungus. And that's, of course, Jack Daniel's whiskey fungus in the town where it is produced. The second item of discussion is the Willow Project. And the third item of discussion will be the Red Tide also known as the Sargasm Seaweed Blob. Make sure to head over to Instagram at The Chronic Failure Podcast. Check out the photos from today's episode as well as the past episodes. And give us a like. And go ahead and give us a follow. I'd also appreciate it if you can like and follow the podcast on whatever streaming platform you are listening on. That'll help us get our name out there and grow, which is the ultimate goal. I hope you'll join us next week. Have a good one.